Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture, and today I'm here with Kathleen Collins, the author of Dr. Joyce Brothers, The Founding Mother of TV Psychology. Kathleen, thanks for being here. Sure, I'm happy to talk with you, Rebecca. Great. Could we start off by having you share how you came to write this book and how you got interested in Joyce Brothers? This book really marries two of my very favorite topics, which are television and psychology. I have long been interested in television history, and my previous book was about the evolution of television cooking shows. And so when I was casting about for a topic for my next book, it I knew it would have something to do with television. And then I thought, well, what are my other abiding interests? And I've also long been interested in psychology, and I have some ed- educational background in the field, and I, I really am driven to read lots of psychology books and things like that. So when you put those two words together, television and psychology, if you're of a certain age, uh, a particular face does come to <laughs> mind. And so I thought, hmm, Joyce Brothers. I, I certainly um, have read little bits and pieces about her, but I don't think anyone's written a book-length treatment of her career. And I thought this is perfect for me. It really will be very satisfying. And I also think she's someone who deserves to have such a thing written about her. Right. And so you put together this book and you structure it in this way. And we'll sort of talk about the different chapters and what you did. But you didn't just give us who she is as a psychologist, right? You sort of introduced us to her life and walked us through sort of the different ways in which she has impacted and influenced um, American popular culture. And so can you talk maybe a little bit about that and the structuring and thinking about how you put together the book? Yeah, well, I I feel um, strongly that it is not a biography, which it's easy for some people to miscast it as such, given that it's about a person, but it's really about her impact on the culture and mainly focusing on her television career and if you look at the table of contents only one of the six chapters is titled psychologist so while that was her overriding profession and how she was known it was really the manifestation of that in the media um, that became so much more than just a psychologist and she was really a different kind of psychologist you know she was something that had never been uh, on tv before i mean it was she really invented her own kind of persona and career and she had so many different hats that she wore in addition to being a psychologist she she did have a phd in psychology but what she represented on tv was something very unique to the medium. And she also 
portrayed uh, a psychologist as a fictional character on dramas and sitcoms and was a staple of television talk shows. Um, so she had a reach that was way beyond simply the profession of psychology. Right. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that you sort of like when I think of Dr. Joyce Brothers, I do. I think of the TV psychologist. Right. That's what I think of. But you sort of introduced us to all the ways in which she was really influential and was groundbreaking. And you start with. Um, the idea that she didn't start out as a TV psychologist, but she instead started out as a contestant. And so can you maybe talk about that sort of first chapter and how Joyce Brothers even ends up on television in the first place? Yeah, well, the TV quiz show $64,000 question was very popular um, in the mid-1950s, and she was one of the viewers of that show with her husband, and they loved watching it like the rest of America. And it just so happened that at the time, her husband was a young medical resident. She was teaching part-time psychology, and they did not have a lot of money. And, you know, the show is about nothing else if not winning a grand sum of money (laughs) in becoming (laughs) instantly rich. So... It just seemed like an obvious thing that she might try, which um, it helped tremendously that she had an amazing memory. So uh, long story short, she was able to get on the show not because of her knowledge of psychology, because the rules of the game would not allow someone to go on the show um, using their profession their professional body of knowledge, but it has to be something outside of their profession. So she decided on the field of boxing, and she really just crammed a whole encyclopedia's worth of knowledge into her brain in a very short period of time to be able to be very successful on the show, so much so that she was the second contestant only and the first woman ever to win the top prize of $64,000. And there was sort of this instant love affair with her, with the American public, right? Like she was on this yeah. show and people really were drawn to her, it seems. Yeah, I mean, she was very charming. She was a young woman in her 20s and very, um, you know, smart but demure. And she was just, an, you know, everyone was on her side because she was so amazing. It was Everyone was rooting for her. Uh, except for the producers of the show who really didn't like her that much because she wasn't presenting the typical feminine image that they wanted, especially given their um, sponsor of Revlon, which was a makeup purveyor. And they they tried to get her off the show, and they couldn't do it. She was so good. She kept answering questions correctly and beating out everybody, including actual boxers. (laughs) And um, so she just sort of triumphed beyond all all these, you know, in the face of all these obstacles and the people loved her. And it was really her entree into the field of television in a way that, you you know, she never could have imagined. And she really took a liking to that, to um, to the adulation and the attention. And it just it just started her on her career. Yes, I loved that sort of just sort of 
juxtaposing, placing her in this position too, that she, she knew what she wanted, that even though the odds were sort of stacked against her, she found a way to persevere, right? Even though they were trying to come up with these questions that there's no way she could answer, she was able to do it twice. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. She just, her memory and, um, you know, her perseverance was, was just, they couldn't believe it. No one could believe it. Right. And when we think of those game shows, too, and you mentioned this a little, there is the investigations into the quiz shows, but she sort of came out of this unscathed as well to sort of set her up for being on television. Yeah. I mean, that was another obstacle that she had to overcome where 64,000 wasn't wasn't one of the shows that was um, directly indicted in the Quisha scandals, um, like the show 21, which which Charles Van Dorn is famous for having participated in, you know, uh, unethical ways. Um, and it but the the whole genre was was really um, damaged by that. And so she was actually investigated, as as many of the contestants on 64 were. Um, But the problem was that she was called in for questioning by the district attorney a a fair amount of time after she had crammed all this information into her her head. And she couldn't answer some of the questions. You know, they Mm -hmm. re-asked her some of the questions. And when she couldn't answer them correctly... They were a bit suspicious, but she said, you know, that's not the way memory works. I crammed it in my head and it's gone now. Um, so there was the potential of her being pinpointed as, as an unsavory player. But she came out of that also totally innocent and unscathed. And that was just the way she was throughout her entire career. She always had kind of a positive aura around her and there was never any any negative scandal. No, that's one of the interesting things, you know, when we can talk about this more too as we go through and talk about more about your book, but this idea that in everything she tries, she is not, there isn't this like dirt on her, right? People aren't right. like, oh, well, but Joyce Brothers did these other things. Like, it seems like she <laughs> is, she is very much very genuine in what she's doing and what she's chosen to do, which right. seems to make her really successful. It made her really successful, no question about it. But I also contend that it's one of the reasons that no one has written a book about her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there was, no, there was just, there was no um, outstanding, exciting scandal that um, gives rise to paying attention to her. She was so part of the tapestry of American media landscape for so many years, and she was so familiar that, I don't know, people just didn't think about her as a subject. And as somebody said in the book, I forget who I quoted, um, to be universally liked is to be relatively ignored. Mm-hmm. And I think that completely describes her. I, in fact, I went to a, a biography writing seminar once, even though I contend it's not a biography. Um, and <laughs> everyone in the seminar was talking about, we were going around the room saying who our subjects were, and, you know, the, the seminar teacher was listening and nodding. When he got to me and I said, Joyce Brothers, he paused, looked at me with a bewildered look and said, why her? <laughs> and I thought, 
what? what? What do you mean? I, mine's the only person in this room that anyone's heard of, <laughs> first of all. And secondly, why, you know, why not her? I mean, I was baffled. I didn't know how to respond to that. But I think it says a lot. I think, right. you know, she's part of, she's almost like wallpaper. It's like, there she is. You, you don't think about her. But she was there for so long. And it definitely was her likability that made people enjoy working with her, made her easy to work with. And an enjoyable person to have on talk shows and sitcoms and everything. Right. Yes. We're so used to, um, especially now, right. In, in our, in modern television and modern media, we want that scandal and she doesn't have that. And, but she was able, but, but that allowed her then to be on television for 50 years. Right. Exactly. And so, and, and so in your book, you want to introduce us to all these different ways, right? Like you mentioned the talk shows and that. So you start out by saying she didn't come on as a psychologist. What she came on as was a contestant. And then, but she really is a psychologist. She's not like many um, people we have on television now who don't have a degree in psychology, but she has that degree and she right. used that to sort of position herself on television. So can you talk a little bit about that role and her as a psychologist? Sure. I mean, right away when she won the game show and got so much national attention, she, her, her wheels started turning immediately. How can I use this? How can I parlay this into a career so I can keep keep this going. She liked it so much. And she really did, even as a young girl, have fantasies about being a glamorous movie star, you know, like many Mm -hmm. young girls do. But she was really, um, you know, seeing this as an opportunity to maybe get a little bit of that, but um, also bringing in her hard hard-earned knowledge. She had a PhD from Columbia, which is a story in and of itself Mm -hmm. about another obstacle she had to overcome. But she um, decided that this would be her entree into television. And she proposed this idea of doing a psychology um, sort of sort of a call-in show, but it was people writing letters to the station and she would answer them. Um, she proposed it to NBC, and they gave it a try, and it was instantly popular. And it just was the beginning. She was never off the TV screen for any day for the rest of her career. I mean, it was just uh, it was just a brilliant idea, and NBC took a chance on her, and that was the first day of the rest of her media life. Right, and it seems that she was also bringing sort of psychology to the general public in a way that had not really been, you know, there were some writing columns and she had done some of that in some radio shows, but she was sort of introducing psychology to mm-hmm. a sort of a new audience and, and also the, 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 like one of the founders or the founding mother of sort of pop psychology and TV psychology. Mm-hmm. So can, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, yeah, she really, I mean, there were um, certainly advice columns going back in, even into the 19th century um, and some kind of more religious-oriented um, TV shows where people would get some self-help 
type things on TV, but she really was the first of her kind. And she came along, you know, in the in the late 50s, which was when her first TV show appeared. It was really a touchy time. You know, people were um, not comfortable talking about sex in public. And she brought these topics, these really taboo topics to television. And um, you could tell people were hungry for it. <laughs> being able to talk about it and really needing a place to take their problems because it was kind of a more repressed era than certainly we live in now. And so it was, it was a bit controversial. You know, the, the uh, um, psychologists that were working in the field, especially members of the American Psychological Association, definitely criticized her brand of psychology, which the term pop psychology had not been invented yet, mm -hmm. but she was purveying that and they didn't like it and they thought it was unethical and um, unsavory. And certainly there was probably a bit of jealousy in there too, because they weren't getting fame and attention for right. their work. But um, so that was, that was something that she had to know about, but she did not let it deter her at all. She was so determined and believed so strongly in the, in the idea that she was providing help for people who might not have another way to access help, who were too um, scared to seek help, or it was just socially unacceptable to seek psychological help. It meant you were crazy. And she was talking about, you know, mundane relationship issues, but also um, other sorts of things that people would deal with that they might be afraid to talk about even with close family members so they could write these letters to her and be anonymous and she would respond, you know, not to every letter on the air, but this is the beginning of um, the sort of vicarious help that people get from media psychology, which is somebody else calls in or writes in with a problem. And even if it's not your letter, if it's this problem that you have, you're getting a vicarious um, bit of advice, a way to deal with it, um, just by listening to what she says to this other letter writer. Right. And you have throughout uh, an, some really fascinating stories about the different ways that she's helped people. Is there one story in particular for you that when you were doing the research that you really, really loved that sort of highlights or talks about the ways in which she did this kind of responding to people and really, really connecting with people as a psychologist? Um, there, there isn't really a standout story that I can think of at the moment. Um, I, I will say that she had what, what her overriding characteristic was that was so helpful to everyone was a very soothing voice and a calm demeanor that made anyone listening to her feel like, you know, everything's going to be okay. You're not crazy. Um, it's, this is normal. And there, there are a couple of legendary stories that she is known for, which were suicide calls. When she later on in the 60s had a call-in radio show, she did have a suicidal caller who she kept on the air um, for hours, actually. I mean, it was unprecedented so that she could manage to... Um, have uh, the emergency 
people go to the person's house and prevent them from harming themselves. And so they, you know, they changed all their radio programming and left the thing on the air because everyone was so riveted. And she, you know, so she saved lives. There's another suicide um, prevention story like that, too. So so those two things particularly stand out. But in general, um, some of the other things were just more kind of funny and charming, given that people you know, we're so shy about talking about their personal problems and the way that she would address them was just so kind and generous and not making anyone feel like they, they were out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. And, and so she sort of starts out and gets, you know, you sort of introduce us to her as a psychologist in that she's, she has this role and she's sort of transformed how we think about psychology and modern day psychology and pop psychology and on television. And then you sort of move into the chapter you titled TV guide, but sort of her role on television and the role she plays. And you talk a little bit about um, Johnny Carson, but as well the way she sort of works with daytime talk shows and sort of was performed as a mediator on some of the shows. And so can you talk a little bit about that in that chapter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she, well, in the chapter that I call TV Guide, it's largely about her appearances on talk shows, most notably Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, where she was a guest more than 90 times, if you can believe it. She was really a staple there, and it was because of her popularity and, again, her sort of charming presence that viewers loved to see her, and Johnny loved working with her also. Um, and she was on other shows too, you know, Merv Griffin, the other the other late time late night shows. She was on daytime talk shows as well. Um, but she would, you know, sex sells. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so she would always have a topic in mind that would be somewhat titillating to the audience. So they knew the audience knew to expect something fun from her when she came on, and especially when she was in a conversation with Johnny Carson, you know, he loved anything related to sex. And so she, they would play off each other very nicely and it was fun for the audience. And she would always make sure that she got some tidbit of factual research in there so that she felt she was doing her job. And she took her job as a psychologist very seriously. And the way she looked at that was to bring the scientific knowledge that most people don't have access to, either understanding it or literally having access to it to the, the, the regular people. And so she always spoke in plain language, no jargon. And so she could get that across and also have fun and accept these little sexual innuendos from Johnny and make a few of her own. Then she felt she was doing a great service. He was, she's the perfect embodiment of the entertainment education continuum that we see in a lot of television. Right. And one thing you talk about, and it sort of weaves throughout the book and you brought it up, is that fact that she makes herself indispensable, right? She stays Mm -hmm. current. Um, You talk about the collections of note cards that she puts together on Mm -hmm. every single subject and Mm -hmm. and getting articles. And can you talk a little bit about her, that professionalism, like wanting to make sure she was knowledgeable and using her her work and her background as a psychologist to, to make herself, to, to carve this role for her and carve this position mm-hmm. for her. Yeah, I think she had a, a, just an 
unbelievable drive in so many areas, but particularly to be um, a knowledgeable person, a, a smart, intelligent woman, and to be relevant and stay in the public eye. And so, you know, she just managed to um, keep these two things equally important. So she would do constant, she was constantly vigilant about staying abreast of research that came out so she could parlay it into some little tidbit for a talk show. Um, Or, you know, when a news program would invite her on to talk about some current event or something. And she had file cabinets, I mean, dozens of file cabinets with multi-drawer file cabinets that were, looked like a, a library card catalog. They were indexed, you know, a, a abortion to, you know, I can't think of another A word, but you know what they look like, <laughs> Alcohol, right? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, alcohol, perfect one. There we go. I mean, and she, she um, kept little note cards with these um, studies, um, you know, the important points of the study on the note card so she could reference them if I suppose sometimes talk shows would say oh we Johnny wants to talk about x tonight or 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 whatever the thing is she's being asked about in the news she could go to her own personally created library and just bone up on the subject and remember these little data points and repeat them flawlessly um, and I got to see these these beautiful file cabinets in person because she donated uh, them to Cornell University, which was her alma mater. So it really, they really, and there's a photograph um, at the end of my book that shows her in front of the file. Some of the, you can see them in the background. Mm-hmm. And they were really kind of her, um, her lifeblood. I mean, she kept that going throughout her entire career. But she knew that she had to be entertaining as well. So it was a matter of weaving things into what was relevant at the time. And the and journalists loved her. They knew that she would have an opinion and information about everything. So she was constantly being called for commentary on anything that happened in the news. Yes. No, I do. I love that picture in the back of the book, too, because it's not showing her the Joyce brothers of like 1950s and 60s that we're used to. It's showing her towards the end of her life, just still engaged with her files and everything and and really, you know, embodies her this entire career. Right. I love that picture, too. So like one thing, too, that I appreciated about your book and, and how you talk about it's not a biography uh, and and I see that in these sort of thematic ways in which you're looking at her. So you also talk, and I think this is really fascinating for me, uh, as doing a lot of feminist research and feminist scholarship, um, mm-hmm. you have this chapter on her as a working woman and sort of how she sort of self-promotes and brands. But also throughout, you sort of talk, like, she does not choose, like, in some ways she could have chosen to be much more sort of outspoken about herself as a fem, you know, a feminist or, mm-hmm. and she doesn't do that. Right. She right, sort of, right. so can you talk a little bit about how she sort of um, brands herself and sort of puts herself out there in her role as mm-hmm. this working woman? Yeah. I think that's another testament to her genuineness was that she did not subscribe in a very, deliberate way to any kind of ism 
she just was who she was. And sometimes she would say things that didn't sound particularly feminist, but mm-hmm. that's just what she felt. And if you look at some of the early advice that she gave people in her <laughs> 1950s shows, it was very unfeminist. Right. <laughs> and it was absolutely a reflection of the time. And, and that's, that's what she, that was another thing that she did very well was evolve with the time. So her, she probably looked back at some of those responses and cringed as well when it got <laughs> to be the 1980s and 90s. But what, what I feel is um, sort of a de facto feminism about her was that authenticity and being true to herself. And as I think it was, um, yeah, it was a book review about Helen Gurley Brown, the Cosmopolitan editor, mm-hmm. that the, um, the reviewer described her as imperceptibly, no, not imperceptibly, imprecisely feminist, which I think can be applied to Joyce Brothers as well. She was, and, and her daughter said this too, she called her a practical feminist. And she was a feminist in the way that she absolutely put her career at, at a very important place in her life um, and would, you know, fly off to do television shows and uh, promotions around the country, but was happily married for her entire life until her husband died. She was the mother of a daughter. And, you know, she she did work very, very hard at her career, even though it was really difficult for her in, in a time when women were not doing this kind of thing. And it made it difficult for her in her daily life, as it does for many women. Um, but she would, she would just, you know, as a role model in that way, I think that we can kind of feel comfortable putting her in the feminist camp, even though I don't think that she would ever call herself a feminist, really. Right. And yet, she, and even if she doesn't, she sort of set up um, and positioned women. The, the work that she did is really help sort of further and position women on television and in- oh yeah definitely and one thing i do like i'd love for you to talk a little bit about and you talk about in the book is how she really because i think this is one thing she did really well is self-promote herself and, and create mm-hmm. sort of this brand for right you talk about this self-promoting this branding of herself and so right. can you talk a bit about that and how you saw right. that I mean, self-promotion was her the, her greatest skill. She, but it was in such a way that was not um, boastful. It was, you know, useful. I have these great ideas for uh, a roundup on your news program. I have um, some great tips to talk about sibling rivalry. And she would come up with these elaborate multi-page idea lists for Good Morning America, The Today Show, you know, all those kinds of morning TV shows, um, and also promote herself to producers of sitcoms, you know, giving them ideas for plot lines that would involve her, you know. <laughs> I mean, just so, just really creative. And one of her um, one of her colleagues in the book, I can't remember the moment who it was, but called her in a very favorable sense, a hustler, <laughs> because that is what she was doing. She was constantly making sure the people were aware, here I am, this is what I can give to you. Um, and it wasn't just 
uh, idol, you know, please cast me. It was, here is how you can use me. I'll do some of the work for you. I'll tell you what to do. And it really worked. People <laughs> did use her. And audiences loved seeing her. So it helped the show as well. So it was a symbiotic relationship. Um, I don't think it was a matter of her being overexposed or people picking up the phone or, oh, it's Joyce Brothers again. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it was really, they really liked hearing from her. And so I, I think without that drive and that ability to keep doing that, she, her career would not have been as long as it was. Mm-hmm. And it seems that another thing that is really important to this sort of whole narrative and this whole her as working woman and her role is is sort of how she grew up and what she had to overcome even to get to Cornell and to go to school and you talk a little bit about that upbringing and her schooling and so mm-hmm. are there can you talk a little bit about that as well yeah she was lucky in that she grew up in a family um with working parents her mother and her father were both lawyers and so she <clears throat> she saw that, you know, her mom was in a, in a way a role model for her. Um, and she, the education was, was prized in her family. So she was a really great student, always kind of top of her class. And everyone would come to her for answers to everything. And um, so she, it, it probably made sense for her to go and become an academic or, um, which is really the psychology path that she was heading toward. She wasn't intent on being a clinical psychologist, which in a sense she ended up being in a, in a strange mass media way, but she was going to be a research psychologist mm-hmm. and probably teach in a college and do all sorts of lab experiments. Um, and so she applied for her doctorate at Columbia. She was accepted and the director of the program said called her in and said you know i i have to accept you because you have all the makings of a perfect candidate for this program but i strongly encourage you to leave that space open for a man who's really going to use it <laughs> and boy did that get her going <laughs> As it and should. she said nope i'm taking it and you know that so that was a, a huge obstacle for her not just in in you know, accept, accepting a position where she sort of knew she wasn't wanted, but things were made more difficult for her while at Columbia. And then, you know, she had to probably deal with a lot of sexism throughout her career in the media, just being, you know, a young blonde woman in the 1950s and 60s. You just can't even imagine what she had to face. And to be able to overcome that and push forward is a real testament to her strength. Right. And and so you set this up, right, and you sort of talk about this, the importance of um, sort of who she is and that grounding that she has. And then so we have a sort of psychology side and this more serious side, but then we move into, you move into also her celebrity, right? So mm-hmm. she moves beyond just being this person for self-help, but she finds, she can make fun of herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she finds a way to like play a psychologist on TV, but she becomes a celebrity in her own right. And so can you talk a little bit about that as well? And Yeah, like, like I said, she loved the limelight, so... She took advantage of it, and that was that was part of her drive to keep going. You know, she like she 
she sort of was living a little bit of that glamorous movie star lifestyle that she had fantasized about as a teenager. And she was on a lot of sitcoms. She would pop up in just any number of sitcoms. <laughs> Everyone came up to me when I was writing this book saying, oh, gee, I remember seeing her on Happy Days and Taxi and Frasier, and she was just everywhere. And so that that made people feel you know have a sort of a warm and fuzzy feeling towards the field of psychology um the psychologist as a person where over the course of her career the cultural attitudes towards psychology really changed a lot from the 50s where people were quite timid about expressing their feelings about their problems let alone seeking help for them then um over the course of the 60s and 70s where people became really interested in discovering themselves um and really expressing themselves and then into the 80s where there were a lot of that that's when there were a lot of these uh, other TV psychologists and radio psychologists popping up so she you know i i i think i've gotten away from your question about celebrity but <laughs> that's it's okay really, <laughs> it's it's um it was her staying on those tv shows i think in a way was um you know in the 80s she became part of just a part of there were a lot of media psychologists around mm-hmm. so maybe a way to distinguish herself was well look i can do all these other things too and still maintain my important role as fact provider and help provider in in the american media but also have fun and and show people you know in a fun way how psychology can be not such a scary thing so she really helped to soften people's fears about psychology over the course of her career so uh, you know you mentioned sort of at the begin you were talking a little bit here and talked about how people would come up to you and tell you about all the sitcoms that she was on so when uh, when you were researching this did you watch a lot of those sort of guest appearances that oh, she yeah. had. So do you have any that you really loved or you were like really surprised oh, a show she was, they, was I don't know if there's a show you were like, I can't believe she was on this or Um You know, it wasn't there wasn't anything that was really surprising, although um because I guess I I mean maybe at first they were surprising, but you know, I remember some of them. I mean I'm certainly old enough to have seen them when they aired. So nothing was really that jarring to me but i i think my favorite one which i don't remember seeing at the time was on fraser where she was at the point in her career where i think it, i can't remember the years fraser was on but this must have been i don't know late 80s early 90s mm-hmm. when she got to a certain point in her career where people producers tv writers were looking at her persona and her iconic status in the culture and poking gentle fun at it you know she's this ubiquitous creature who appears on TV all the time so much so that Frazier did this where Frazier you know the radio psychologist character was being asked to do some kind of commercial promotion for something but he was having an ethical battle with himself should i do it is it selling out i don't know if i feel comfortable with this and in the end um I think he had to I don't know jump out of a cake or it was some something where he was supposed to jump out of something 
And in the end, he decided against it. And who jumped out of the thing but Joyce Brothers, right? <laughs> so, so the message is, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll sell out. <laughs> because she never had any problem with that. She never saw any discrepancy between, you know, um, showing up on a TV show and still being what she considered to be a serious, caring psychologist. Right. And well, it's interesting uh, as you, you know, you're talking about Frazier and sort of jumping out of this box and, but with her whole life, she seemed to really be able to separate her personal life from that sort of persona that she had created. And she did, like you said, she, she doesn't have skeletons in her closet. She had a stable marriage. She had a husband who she was with for what, 40 plus years, Yeah, uh, you know, her daughter seems to be well educated and, yes, you know, like well adjusted, right? Yes. Yeah, so we're not seeing her and, you know, it's not like Joyce brothers. Right. So she also has like, not only sort of created this persona, but also, um, lived a life where she really practiced what she preached kind of. In yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, she would say in interviews, that her um, marriage was really important to her and her keeping her husband happy was important to her. And she would go to great lengths to do that. And she would admit to having a husband who didn't know how to do any housework and didn't help her with that. And, you know, that she would freeze lasagna for him when she went, had to go to California and do all these sort of wifely things where in today's world, she might be criticized for that. Like, what kind of a feminist are you? If you, if you're putting your husband's needs before your own, your own, but as she saw it, it made her very happy to do that. She wasn't going to pretend that her career was more important than her husband. Um, and she just, she just made no bones about it. So I think that, um, yeah. Right. And, and also her husband, she had a marriage and a relationship that allowed her to travel, to go all over, to do these things. Right. 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 Which is important. You're sure. Yeah. She had a very supportive husband. Um, she, her daughter, you know, I'm sure it was difficult for her at times, but she definitely, her, the the family supported her in her work. And I'm sure it benefited them as well. So it probably wasn't easy at times, but every everybody enjoyed it. And I've spoken at length with her daughter, who was very successful um, ophthalmologist herself. So she's another, you know, successful doctor brothers. <laughs> Um, and so your final chapter really talks about the different ways in which she was a pioneer, right? One of the, sort of those arch overarching themes throughout this is what she has to overcome and her staying power and how she just sort of crafts and creates and really works, right? It isn't that this none of this is just sort of dumped on her, that she really works and is really deliberate about creating this space for herself. And, and so you give us these different ways in which she has... Um, the legacy of Joyce Brothers. And so can you talk a bit about um, some of the ways in which the, the legacies that she has created? Yeah, well, she, in, in the one way, like, like you said, she did was a role model for other women just to um, put effort into their careers and take their careers seriously. Um, and she did open doors for other media psychologist, Dr. Ruth Westheimer credits 
Joyce and Dr. Joy Brown credits her. Many people credit her for being the person who was a pioneer and, and led the way for them to do what they do, especially to talk explicitly about sex like Dr. Ruth does. Um, and on the, on the other, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, she really was doing what I talk about in the final chapter, things like um, Oprah and Martha mm-hmm. Stewart, you know, creating these media empires, not quite as deliberately, you know, as people do now. People are much more savvier about branding, and I don't think she was as cognizant of creating a brand. It was just her tireless um, perseverance to keep herself in the public eye ultimately created a brand and that iconic familiar face and hair and style of talk remained constant throughout her her career which you know by definition that's her brand and so she created this um she was really the first you could say kind of media empress because Mm -hmm. she had all these different Um, places where she was successful, not just the one. And what I also think is really interesting about her trajectory is that she started out in the 50s when people were hungry for experts telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. And today it is flipped completely, where people are very suspect of the elite's PhDs saying this is what's what and you know especially if you look at those um, talk shows and even shows like Oprah not even the Jenny Jones type shows but people want to hear about experience and I that to me is a really fascinating aspect of, of all of this is that we've gone from you know the expertise and authority to to um, respecting experience more so, so much so that I feel like she wouldn't have a place today. She wouldn't quite fit in now because that's not where her strength came from. And it's interesting. I'm just thinking this right now, you know, given our, our, the war on facts that mm-hmm. we're living through right now, you know, I, first of all, we would all love to know what she would be saying in this right. Um, climate right now, this political, she would certainly have a lot to say, but she also would, you know, not quite fit in with the way the people accept advice now, where everything is kind of crowdsourced and, um, you know, uh, boots on the ground experience is what people treasure more than someone telling them an authoritative view of something. I mean, that's, that's a bit simplistic, but I think it does sort of paint the picture of the, the way the times changed so much over the course of her career. Yeah, it was interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about along those lines about how she came in in this time where having that PhD was important, but she also seems, and what I think you bring out in your book is there's this way that she was able to 
meet people where they're at, right? So she wasn't mm-hmm. talking over people. She was right. so even though she had that. I, I, my guess is very few people, even if they know Joyce Brothers and have seen her on television, can tell you that. Oh yes, she had a PhD and she was a clinical psychologist. You know, she was planning for these things, mm-hmm. and, and so she really did a nice job of sort of being able to really get people to attach to her or, or you know, want to learn from her or hear from right. her. Right. Yeah. She didn't, she, I don't think she ever really had a bad, um, you know, a school marmish kind of, uh, cast about her. I think people, you're right. She didn't use elitist language, um, which is probably why she was able to go on for so long. She adapted so well to the times, but it was, uh, you're right. It, it was such a big deal for her to be a, a doctor, you know, and be on TV and be a woman in those early days that it helped. It made her unique. Mm-hmm. And yet she sort of didn't, but she also didn't use that. She used that to be knowledgeable, but she didn't sort of flaunt that no. in ways that. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a bit, you know, sort of about your book and and about this. So what are you working on now? Are you, you know, what are you, what's going on with the book? Are you taught, you know, giving talks, doing that kind of thing or? Um, not, you know, not much uh, going on with the book. Um, I think what, what my hope is, is that people will, I mean, because she's such a specific character, um, a, a personage that, I feel like it's not, it, it's, it's almost too specific to get a lot of attention. I mean, I've gotten some nice reviews, but it's not like when I did my show, my cooking show book. I mean, everybody wants to talk about cooking shows. Mm-hmm. Absolutely everybody. <laughs> so that got a lot more kind of mass attention. And this is pretty much what I was expecting with this book. But what I hope is that people will read it, even if they say, oh, I don't know who she is or I don't care about that. Um, you know, topic. It's that it's a larger picture. So in my ideal usage of the book, it would be read by people who are interested in media studies and, and women's studies. So if those, those kinds of uses take time. So, you know, I'll be watching people's syllabi and <laughs> citations <laughs> over the next few years see if that comes to fruition <laughs> right and, yeah because i guess I, when you were saying that like because she is even though we ha- know her as a psychologist and a tv psychologist she can be situated in sort of these other spaces as well and right. which i think is really fascinating about right like i didn't know much about her and i mean i know i saw her on tv i remember mm-hmm. seeing her but but just to see all the ways in which she sort of participated in the media and like you talk about like without so oprah or martha stewart they they had something to look to to brand themselves right and they and they may not have even looked at her Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know they it's just that she had set the stage for that to happen um you know they they may have done what they did anyway it's not like she made it possible for them but she did it way before they did right and in a much more difficult environment so that's you know if it, i i would hope that if anything people would look at this book and have the exact same reaction that you just outlined which is wow i never you know thought about her in this way before and i think that's exactly what's happened is people just didn't think about her mm-hmm 
Right. And all the ways in which she can sort of seep in. And I think like even looking because her career is so large, right, be, or long lasting to be able to say, OK, and she doesn't she doesn't seem to be apologetic for what she was before. Right. Like, no, never. Oh, she she was never she never apologized for anything. She <laughs> felt absolutely sure about everything she ever uttered. And she was very confident, and she said, always said in, in her interviews that that is what um, propelled her and made her feel like she could be a TV figure because she never felt especially beautiful or glamorous or anything, but she said it's all about confidence. Mm-hmm. And she, she followed that to, you know, to the very end. Right, and that's what sort of comes through, which is really sort of great about her. So... Yeah. Um, are you working on anything else right now? Well, I'm, I'm going in a less um, scholarly direction, <laughs> but still in a TV direction. I'm working on sort of a, a memoir about my own experience with television over the course of my life. So it's, again, not, a, not an autobiography, and I don't feel so comfortable with memoir, but um, <laughs> that's, it, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be my... My life with television. Okay. So we'll see what that ends up being. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been a really great ta- conversation. It's been really great to talk to you. Um, thank you so much. I've had a great time. Yes. Again, this was, uh, I was talking to Kathleen Collins, the author of Dr. Joyce Brothers, the founding mother of TV psychology for the New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture podcast. Thank you, Kathleen. Thanks, Rebecca. Rebecca.